Hey everyone, Andrew here. I recently went to the American Heart Association meeting in Philadelphia, where I conducted a few interviews with different presenters and moderators on a variety of topics. So today I have a shorter episode with you where I visit with Dr. James DeLemos after a session about acute coronary syndromes uh, update for 2019. As I'm sure many of you are aware, there have been many studies about a dual antiplatelet therapy and the proper choice of agents and the proper duration. So we mentioned a couple of trials there um, and then we discussed about also uh, updates in understanding of pathophysiology. It was a really great session. We didn't have a lot of time to talk about all the things, um, but I think it hits a couple of highlights and we refer to a few trials that I'll make sure to include in the show notes. Uh, if you go over to the website apcardiology.com, uh, you'll find links to the papers uh, mentioned there. A big thank you goes out to the folks over at MedPage Today uh, who helped make these interviews happen. Another thank you goes out to the people over at Think Labs. Think Labs is the creator of a digital stethoscope, the Think Labs One digital stethoscope. It has the best in-class sound quality and amplification, allowing for improved auscultation of hard-to-hear heart sounds. You can use promo code APCARDIO19 now for $50 off your purchase at store.thinklabs.com. I've been using the stethoscope now for a couple of months and have been really impressed by its quality and ability to filter out extra noises uh, to hear some of those lower pitched heart sounds like an S3 or some uh, diastolic rumbles. Um, looking forward to creating that content and sharing it with you uh, in the next year. And with that, we'll get started with today's episode. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. All right, thank you for meeting with me today, Dr. Lemos. Can I have you say your name and your title for our audience? Well, thanks, Andrew. My name is James Delemus. I'm a professor of medicine at UT Southwestern and a member of the Division of Cardiology there. Perfect, thank you. And we are meeting at the American Heart Association Conference, and we just finished a session on acute coronary syndromes in 2019, a bit of an update talk, and you were one of the moderators there. Uh, there were a number of like interesting things there. I think one of the questions I wanted to focus in on and ask you about, there's been a lot of discussion about dual antiplatelet therapies in acute coronary syndromes. And so from your takeaways from the talks this morning, what are like some of the big highlights and updates in dual antiplatelet therapy currently? I think it's become a fairly controversial topic. The discussion around the results of ISAR REACT-5 are very disruptive to the field. Many of our, our centers had been using uh, large amounts of ticagrelor as the preferred P2Y12 inhibitor, and the ISAR REACT-5 study fundamentally questioned whether that's a wise move and whether we've overlooked, uh, for example, um, prazagril as a, an alternative for high-potency P2Y12 inhibitor. So I, I do think that ISAR REACT-5, together with other unimpressive studies with ticagrelor are going to lead to a fundamental shift in our use of potent P2Y12 inhibitors. We'll be using more prazagril, less ticagrelor, and in some patients, um, many, maybe even in more patients, uh, clopidogrel is a safer alternative, particularly when combined with other antiplatelet and anticoagulants. Gotcha. And there was another thing mentioned about when we talk about clopidogrel, because, you know, Plato trial also demonstrated the superiority of ticagrelor versus clopidogrel. Now we're getting this discussion of prazagril versus ticagrelor. And the thing about clopidogrel, there's a lot of non-responders. So I'm not sure about some look at those older trials, whether some of those differences in impacts are based on non-responders and 
if there was this popular genetics trial, if we identify those non-responders up front, would we be able to also safely use clopidogrel in some of those patients? It, that's a great question. There's been a lot of interest in, in either upfront strategies for identifying poor clopidogrel responders or after-the-fact strategies that measure the phenotype of non-response with antiplatelet testing. And I'd say while it's incredibly attractive as a hypothesis, in my view, the data are, are inconclusive at this point. And I, I'll, I'll just make the point that, that both Plato and Triton um, probably overestimate the magnitude of benefit, in my opinion, of prasgrel and ticagrel over clopidogrel by virtue of some unique features of study design that exaggerate to some extent the effect by focusing, for example, on procedural MIs instead of clinical MIs. I do believe there's a benefit, but I think a, a nuanced appreciation of the trials would suggest that it's really a trade-off of some modest MI benefit and some bleeding harm. Gotcha. Okay. There's also been some discussions about the duration of dual antiplatelet therapy, and specific the TWILIGHT trial, uh, demonstrating that after three months of ticagrelor plus aspirin, dropping the aspirin may be appropriate in some of those patients as well. Yeah, that's a great question, and I think a really attractive idea, uh, particularly in patients at, at higher bleeding risk, this concept that, you know, aspirin's sort of losing its shine, isn't it, with in primary prevention it already has, and even in secondary prevention in stented patients, we know now that many uh, have very low rates of stent thrombosis when aspirin's withdrawn, and twilight extends that to individuals not on oral anticoagulants. And I think it's an attractive idea for patients that are at higher bleeding risk and not at high stent thrombosis risk to think about withdrawing aspirin at around three months um, in high bleeding risk individuals. Now, the other piece of this that's moving that you raise is just how long one needs to cons continue DAPT anyway, because the stable, st the, the stenting trials of stable CAD suggest that much shorter durations may be appropriate. So it's really a, mm -hmm. it, what used to be a one-year fixed duration is now a, ver a fairly short duration in low-risk individuals, but perhaps a longer duration in higher-risk individuals. Gotcha. I also heard one of my attendings uh, mention the point that for a lot of those trials, there's no discussion of the appropriate delivery of the stent about size uh, sizing, like using IVUS, and then confirmation of placement afterwards. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I thought uh, uh, Dr. Janai uh, really gave some nice comments on the adjunctive use of intracoronary imaging to optimize stent deployment and, and how that might reduce lesion-related events. I think it's, uh, and there are data to support that that he presented. So I think I I those techniques are underutilized. Um, I think I in many of our cath labs that are moving patients through so fast, that extra time it takes is a disincentive to operators, but seeing the data and, and recognizing that one can improve the results of the stent procedure and prevent both stent thrombosis and restenosis events to some extent with optimal stent deployment really raises the bar for what an optimal stent procedure post-ACS should look like. Great. Thank you. Then, and when you're speaking about like kind of the hustle and bustle of the cath lab, going back to the uh, first speaker whose name I'm forgetting, but talking about the mechanisms about plaque rupture and plaque erosion. Uh, I was surprised to learn that about 30% of these patients have plaque erosion as the cause for their acute coronary syndrome, and that can be a difficult uh, diagnosis to make in the cath lab. And perhaps there was also a question raised at the end about perhaps we're missing some of those patients. I think it was a great point. It was uh, Dr. Locke Finn from, um, from Emory, and he's done a lot of uh, really innovative pathology work. and. This concept of plaque erosion and even the, the other concept he mentioned, which are the calcified nodules as other mechanisms leading to acute coronary syndrome is really important and really would not be recognized if we don't do things beyond 
coronary angiography. Uh, OCT is probably the preferred method to diagnose uh, plaque erosion in contemporary medicine, and it's uncommonly used. Most of our cath labs actually don't have it. And I think what, we'll, what we're likely to see is a, an emergence of a more comprehensive cath evaluation in the future for patients where obvious thrombus and plaque ruptures not seen so that we can evaluate all of the possibilities, plaque erosion being one of them, but spontaneous dissection, mm -hmm. uh, other mechanisms also being possible. Gotcha. Are there any tricks on or any uh, tip-offs on angiography that could suggest, oh, this might be an abnormal place that needs to have OCT? I, great question. I think that I when the case looks for all the world like a type 1 myocardial infarction, you've got a, a you know, and you get to the cath lab and you don't find obstructive disease or visible thrombus, then that should point the operator and the clinical team to think about other possibilities, including a plaque erosion without obstruction or other possibilities that would include, um, as we've already mentioned, uh, dissection, but also uh, vasomotor abnormalities in the coronaries. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, and then maybe my, my last question, where we're talking about the COMPASS trial, the use of anticoagulations. It seems like... Um, in my reading, it's almost like what's old is new again, whereas like warfarin had been seen to be superior in preventing recurrent MIs and uh, in preventing um, MACE events. And now we're kind of going back to that same idea with safer uh, DOACs and with rivaroxaban in that comparison. Any thoughts or comments? Yeah, it's a great point. I think you're right that, that the COMPASS trial sort of reinvigorates the thrombin hypothesis in coronary disease patients and um, with a safer drug at a lower dose. So the difference is it's a lower dose and it's a safer drug than warfarin, so it, it really merits significant consideration. I think where many of us are struggling is how to, how to incorporate the actual results of that trial into our patients because there's so many moving parts in these individuals. So, you know, we're dealing with dual antiplatelet therapy and issues around when or if to drop the aspirin, as you mentioned, by twilight, and then trying to figure out, well, who's a COMPASS patient? who's a DAPT patient that should have longer duration dual antiplatelet therapy. And that's been difficult. In, you know, in my, in my view, the low-hanging fruit from COMPASS for clinical implementation is really the PVD population because they don't overlap as much with the post-stent population. And I think, mm -hmm. I think there's a real opportunity for all of us to implement the COMPASS data in our high-risk PVD patients uh, where we're not dealing with combining um, necessarily with multiple antiplatelet agents. Gotcha. Perfect. Well, I appreciate your time in visiting with me. Well, I had real pleasure. Thanks for having me. This episode is sponsored in part by MedPage Today. You can find transcripts of this episode and all other episodes of AP Cardiology on medpagetoday.com. This episode is also sponsored in part by Think Labs, the creators of, a, of the Think Labs One digital stethoscope. Much thanks to the band, Broke for Free, whose song, Night Owl.